everyone welcome to the radical reverend show again of course as always these days taping off site uh, but welcome to ciut 89.5 fm of course as well we broadcast from buffalo to barry kitchener to coburg wide wide range and also podcast today is our left lefter leftist panel which is always fun and i'm of course your host the radical reverend herself sherry de novo my day job at trinity st paul center for faith justice and the arts and our regular panelists are here we've got emma and alex and emma strategist uh, for the liberal party in canada and alex with fight back uh editor of both of the magazine um Marxist journal and of course of the organization. So welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hi Sherry. Hello. hello. So let's get going with September. Uh, Alex, I'm going to start with you because you have children and they are going back to school. Uh, what grades, what's it going to look like? How are you feeling? A lot of parents are very, very nervous, very nervous and, and not just parents but teachers as well <clears throat> and uh, school staff that the government is playing Russian roulette with the schools, with our children, that they're, they're forcing the, uh, the children to go back to school with full class sizes, despite the fact that uh, all of the sort of health recommendations say that you should reduce the class sizes to at least 15. And, and, and it's money. It, at the end of the day, it really comes down to money. You know, they're saying that they're following the uh, the the, uh, the sick kids, uh, the hospital for sick children uh, guidelines, and they're following the ones that are cheap. But the main guideline is keep uh, the, uh, the class sizes below fifteen, and uh, and they're not doing that because it costs lots of money. I think it, some people estimated three billion dollars, but they've got all of this money for corporate bailouts and all of the rest of it. Um, but they've got nothing to stop a, a, a potential outbreak in the schools, which could be the, the trigger for a second wave. I uh, remember on Twitter in the last couple of weeks, uh, someone from a teacher's union posted a picture, photograph of a, of a portable, and we've all seen portables and what they look like, roughly the size of a, you know, a trailer, uh, and said, I'm going to you know, socially distance 25 kids in here, how? Um, so, so Emma, what's what's going on here? I mean, it, clearly, uh, teachers' unions, parents are are kind of up in arms. We get that parents have kind of need school, or they need childcare, they need kids need to get out of the house. But um, but we've seen in other jurisdictions, um, Israel, for example, went back in May and outbreaks ensued. Now we're seeing this huge experiment happening south of the border where teachers are drawing up their wills before they go back to school, um, where kids are getting suspended for uh, posting photos uh, of you know, crowded hallways, et cetera. Um, say something, Emma. So th this is, uh, Alex, right? This is all about money uh, with the Ford Leche uh, quote unquote plan, because uh, it's not a plan, it's, it's uh it, it's i think it's a mixture of uh their desire to create a crisis in education just like snowballing did back in the 90s to be able to destabilize public faith in public education 
and it's um, an unwillingness to invest what we need to invest to ensure that students can go back to school safely. Listen, there's there's no question that some uh, there's some parents that need will need their kids to go back to school. Uh, not everyone can distance learn. Uh, there's technology issues. Not every kid can afford a computer or uh, or access the internet. Um, we need schools. Um, and the sick kids report was right in that. It's and that's not a flawless study, by the way. But they are right. Some kids do need to go back to school. But I think what we need to do is address this, uh, like the national emergency that it is. We need to invest a lot of money to make sure that we can radically increase the the uh, the, the amount of teachers we have, so that we can uh, radically increase the number of classrooms we have. Um, uh, so that kids can go back to school, not in classes of 20 or 30 or even probably 15. Uh, and, and we know uh, that we'll probably have to do that. We'll have to use um, facilities that are not necessarily um, dedicated to schools. We'll have to use community centers. We'll have to use, uh, there's lots of office space that's not being used right now. And the fact of the matter is a lot of these schools are aging. The HVAC systems uh, are not up to speed. Um, as any person can tell you how quickly just a normal flu or cold um, can go through a, a, a elementary school. Um, we, and we know from our lessons in other jurisdictions that at the beginning of this pandemic, um, there was a lot of transmission between people because of air conditioning systems. And we are, it, it's a nightmare to think that we can put 30 kids in a room uh, and a thousand kids in a school and not see an outbreak. I mean, this this idea of masking little kids, I mean, remember four to eight, they're still little kids, uh, is absolutely absurd to me in the sense that how do we expect the kids will put masks on, deal properly with each other, wash their hands whenever they touch things that other kids touch, keep socially distant with, you know, usually one teacher in the classroom trying to monitor all of this, um, this is insane. And even if parents keep their children home, that those that, that can, uh, then we're still talking about, you know, thousands of education workers, teachers, and, you know, EAs, et cetera, who are going to have to be there, um, who are also risking their health. So um, I was saying to Alex earlier, a, a friend again from a teacher's union said, well, here's what's going to happen. After a couple of weeks, there'll be a, an outbreak in some school, they'll shut it all down that will be it. Maybe they're even counting on that. What do you think about that, Emma? And then I'll go back to Alex. Yeah. And, and that goes back to uh, what I said about trying to sow uh, chaos and, and a crisis in, in our education system. I think we, we know uh, going back before the pandemic that uh, the one of the um, the goals of Stephen Lecce and Doug Ford was to to replace in physical classroom uh, teaching with online uh, 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 instruction. So I think they're capitalizing on this, that we, that we uh, do need to do some online um, education and they're trying to, to create a crisis of, of faith in our public education system so that they can move to completely move it to uh, online. Alex, online teaching, it's happening, of course, at the college level, uh, university level, as well as in the public school system, uh, elementary and post and secondary. Uh, and, you know, this is mostly being taught, have to say, at the college level, since Emma raised the online teaching thing, um, by part-time contract workers who uh, have been underpaid since the get-go and have no job seniority or security really much. 
um, and are now, you know, at home teaching more than they ever taught for less hours, essentially. Um, talk to me about online learning and, and what Emma raised, this crisis of public education. Is this behind this? Is this a move to privatize? Um, I, I think there's, there's a part of that. I, I think partially they're in total chaos and they don't know what they're doing and they're just hoping that things turn out well. And I just, uh, I, you know, there's no plan. There's absolutely no plan. Like what, what happens if a kid gets sick at school? Like it could be COVID, it could be a cold, but then does that entire class go into lockdown for two weeks? Uh, and then what happens to all of those parents? Uh, are they going to be given that they've got to then come home to look after the kids? And are they going to be given sick pay because the Ford government cut the sick pay or, or, or caregiver pay? Mm -hmm. uh, so the um, there is absolutely no plan with respect to online learning. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I, I've seen online learning. It's it's not a replacement for proper in-class learning. It's not. It's not even close. And so yes, many families need kids need to go back to school because there's huge inequities there. Like if uh, if you're wealthy, you're seeing uh, wealthy families take their kids out, hire a private tutor, and and they and they can have one laptop per child. But if you've got um, if you've got uh, parents working from home, but they're using up the uh, uh, the computer, uh, what's the kid using? Or if you've got more than you know one or two children, are you going to have you know a uh, a laptop for each child? That's just there's huge economic inequities being built into the system. Yeah, Ford's saying, oh, if you're not feeling comfortable, you can keep your kid home. Well, that's fine if you're wealthy, but working class families just cannot do that. And so, yeah, I, there's a very high likelihood that the system will collapse. And uh, and then, but if Ford stays like this, everyone will blame the government. Everyone would have blamed the government right now uh, if they if they if there is a collapse and they didn't do everything they can to reduce class sizes. I, I'm hearing too from middle class families who have children uh, with special needs who need extra attention for one thing or another um, that many of them are put into this uh, who support public education absolutely, but who are kind of thinking, do I make my child a strike force for public education or you know do I get them an education and take them out and have to pay like twenty plus thousand a year in some private uh, school so that. This class is small, they get the attention they need. Um, and this has been going on since the funding formula, since Mike Harris first brought that in. But I mean, this is just gonna exacerbate that surely. Um, so you end up like we they do in the States where people with money send their kids to private schools and people without money and, and options go to the public school system. Do you think that's gonna happen? Alex, and then I'll go to Emma on that. Absolutely, uh, it's already happening. It is already happening that uh, a lot of uh, wealthier families are taking their children uh, into private schooling, which they can, uh, you know, it's either uh, close attention online or small groups uh, face to face. Uh, so I, I, in Britain, I know that, uh, that, that they're forcing uh, families to send their children to school, uh, but the entire British cabinet uh, send all of their children to private schools who are having far smaller class sizes and social distancing and, and the rest of it. Um, so you've really got the class system being uh, implemented there. Emma, private schools in the future for a lot? 
Yeah, and, and not just uh, even private, the traditional idea of private schools, you know, the upper Canada colleges and the such. I think what we're seeing, and we're seeing it right now is on Facebook, um, retired teachers and late, recently laid off teachers advertising small um, uh, five, five student or more, um, uh, what they call uh, teaching pods, where they, they'll instruct them in their own home, uh, you pay how many thousands of dollars and that for that semester, uh, that teacher will, will teach uh, your kid and, and, a, and a couple of others in, in their home. Uh, and, and we're going to be seeing a lot of that. I, and I think in the fall, because uh, Alex is right, this is going to collapse after a couple of weeks. There's just there's absolutely no way um, <laughs> that this is, is going to make any sense. I mean, kids get sick normally uh, in a normal uh, September and October. Um, and, and he's right if a kid has a runny nose, does that mean uh, that they have COVID or do they have a cold? And do, and not only does, then do they need to be quarantined? Does the bus driver, does the school nurse, does the recess monitor? Like it's, this is going to be a disaster. Uh, and, uh, it, and again, I think it's going to have uh, a lot of ramifications, uh, not the least of which uh, the, again, the drop in faith in our public school system, but, like Sherry, you just mentioned, like kids with special needs, uh, they can't afford to lose a year of special instruction or the support that they get from um, being in a physical school. Uh, this is going to have real tragic implications beyond just people getting sick um, from COVID. This is going to have a broad social um, impact uh, on our society. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show on podcast or on radio. I've got uh, the Left Left or Leftist panel with Emma Wakelin, a liberal strategist, Alex Grant, uh, Marxist from Fight Back, and uh, yours truly, Sherry DeNovo, uh, holding it down at uh, Trinity St. Paul's in her day job. Uh, let's move on to something else that's looming um, come September. And that's the move off CERB, um, which is this guaranteed income that many have been getting of about 2000 a month, uh, to EI. Um, Alex, what's gonna happen there? What's happening there? Well, they haven't released all the details. And, uh, and a lot of people who've uh, gone on CERB wouldn't qualify for EI, either because they don't have enough hours or because they're a gig or a contract worker. And uh, and so who knows what's going to happen? The, the Liberals said they're going to implement something, uh, but it's if it's going to be, the EI rate is at 55% of earnings. So are people going to be getting 55% of their, what the $2,000 from CERB, then things can be very, very dicey. This, you know, and, and this, and all the right wing media and right wing commentators are saying, "Oh, it's so expensive." Well, yes, uh, there, there's a lot of money behind this, but then that this the money to serve dwarfs corporate handouts. There's over seven hundred billion dollars in uh, potential uh, support for uh, corporations uh, out there. There's uh, the uh, there's the business loan, which is a ten thousand dollar giveaway to small and medium businesses with no strings attached. So that they're putting all the emphasis on CERB and ignoring the, the corporate handouts. And, uh, and in a city like Toronto, people can't, are only just surviving on CERB 
But if you cut that by half, how are people going to pay rent? How are people going to eat? So this there's a huge social uh, crisis in the making. Uh, so Emma, uh, there, there's been a lot of talk about sort of a guaranteed annual income. I mean, it goes back a half a century, really, in our country to talk about it. Um, Serb kind of gave us uh, a, an experiment in that for a limited period. Uh, period of time. What do you see happening with the EI? Because in light of what Alex has said, uh, you know, a lot of commentators are saying, whatever happens, even if you can qualify, even if you move from servant to EI, it's going to be less. Yeah. And a lot of people are barely making go of it, even on serve, let's face it, in the city of Toronto. Um, what do you think? Yeah, it, 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 Alex, straight. There's no details, so we we honestly we don't know if if it's true that uh, Serb will be capped at fifty five. If if the EI rules apply, there's two major problems. Well, there's a lot of problems, but two come to mind. One is uh, the fifty five percent cap of of the two thousand. So I don't know how. Uh, anyone in a public policy uh, frame of mind would think that 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 would be an acceptable replacement to Serb. Uh, no one can survive off of, uh, I can't do math quickly, but a thousand or $1,100 a month, that's that's uh, just uh, insanity. Uh, and then the other problem is EI traditionally, um, depending on where you live in the country, it has a time limit. And that's anywhere between six months to nine months uh, of eligibility. Um, and we're already, uh, Serb started in, in March. So we're already four or five months into that. So are we talking about an, a program that's going to expire, throw you off of EI in, in a month or two months? Um, the warning that I gave um, in the last uh, episode, when I, when I said that the popularity that the governments have right now because they they have been handling uh, the, the the crisis so far so well and I say that also in quotations uh, that will disappear completely if they mess uh, this up um, it, and, and to be honest uh, EI is not meant to be a universal uh, um, income uh, it, it's it's a temporary stop gap for folks who lose a job what we do need is a universal basic income um, scheme uh, set up in, in, in this country, much like we tried to implement in Ontario uh, before Ford um, cut the pilot program. Um, we need to find a system that works so that we have guaranteed income in this country. Otherwise, um, uh, uh, we'll find out quickly uh, what a disaster that will be in a couple of months when, when, we, when we end that eligibility. Uh, Emma, before I go back to Alex, just going to talk about the popularity of governments. You raised this. Um, so, so clearly uh, something has shifted dramatically in Ford's, uh, you know, back, uh, back room <laughs> in terms of his presentation. I mean, he's gone from what seemed like a bumbling incompetent when he was first elected and polls reflected that to kind of that you know, you know, he's not the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's, you know, you're like your nice uncle um, uh, and sort of hears your pain. And Lecce has been like, a, people love, you know, Lecce's appearance at least, not teachers, obviously, or parents, but, but you know, he's very slick. He seems to, you know, he's got a good PR front. Um, I, you know, and, the polls are reflecting this in Ontario, despite everything. Um, what do you say to that? Well, I would say uh, this: listen, a, a crisis like a pandemic, uh, although the work there, and I'm not going to say the job of uh, being in government 
would be easy during this, but it is certainly easy to come off as doing a good job. Um, the bar was set so low for Doug Ford uh, in the last two years that it didn't take much for him to look competent and him just standing up and, and giving a calm voice um, over the last few months was enough to, to convince people that he, he wasn't a bumbling fool. But the, what we're seeing now that um, uh, it we're, we've raised our expectations from a public, from beyond just surviving a pandemic to actually recovering from one, uh, we see that the cracks are forming again. Just recently, his comments about being on CERB, um, you know, uh, how if you're on CERB right now, you're lazy and you should go back to getting a job. Um, it, Doug Ford's going to Doug Ford. He's going to go back to being who he is because he can't help. That's who he is. Um, and um, I, I said from the beginning that the popularity um, for both the federal and the provincial governments um, were fleeting. It was a deck of cards. And uh, we're seeing that now, again, um, the popularity for both levels of government are, are starting to slip. Already, uh, Doug's back again uh, in uh, polling, uh, back in second place. So um, I, I think it's just a matter of our expectations were so low for him, but now our expectations are, are rising again. And uh, he's going to find that hard to... Uh, to meet. Alex, um, let's talk about the quotes unquote popularity of the governments now. Um, and with you, I'm going to just ask about the federal government. It, it, we see the WE scandal, which quite frankly, you know, those of us in politics saw cracks in that charitable scheme way, way back. Um, and, you know, it's just taken a while for that, you know, to show publicly to everybody else. But, um, uh, but you know, first of all, it seems to be hurting federally uh, but not that much. I mean, the Liberals would still, if there was an election, win a majority, despite all of that. Um, and provincially, I didn't see the poll that Emma's referring to, the maybe the most recent one, but but Doug's still a whole lot better off than he was at the beginning of uh, his tenure. Um, what, what do you think uh, about that? Well, I don't think the public's been quite as politicized and volatile than they have in generations that uh, a politician can be risen up and then crash down on a very short period of time. That yes, both uh, Trudeau and Ford got a boost out of the pandemic, but now if uh, well, Trudeau's been eroded by the wee scandal and if uh, millions of people end up functionally homeless out of the, the end of Serb, then that can crash down. And same if Ford uh, messes up the back to school, he could crash down also very quickly. In terms of the Wee scandal, well, this is this is strike three, right? Uh, the strike three of the elitist insider millionaire scandals. Uh, you know, first you had the the holiday with the Aga Khan. You know, I, I wish I could go to a, on a holiday on a yacht on an island with the Aga Khan, uh, or maybe I don't. Um, then you had the the SNC Lavalin, uh, in you know backdoor, do us a deal, uh, give us a break, uh, scandal. And now you've got the the millionaire charity. It's like you've got these charities where they're giving out hundreds of thousand dollars of speaking fee fees, and them and themselves are millionaires and property speculators. Like I, I don't think you know uh, this is the Christian view of charity. Uh, that to enrich oneself, you know, uh, this is uh, this is not what it's about, and it, it's again, it's all of this insider um, boys club. Mourner, Bill Mourner, 
uh, went on a trip to Africa with we, and uh, and he forgot about forty thousand dollars of travel expenses. Now I've never been on a holiday for forty thousand dollars, let alone forgetting about the expenses. Oh my god! And uh, he he also previously forgot he had a villa in the south of France. So th these are not people. These are not working class people. These are multimillionaires, and they live in an totally different world from us. And and that typifies uh, this scandal. And, and and Trudeau just seems to be totally oblivious. Uh, Emma, I'm not, not going to press you on this issue, but um, where where were the where were their staff? <laughs> I have to wonder about the staff. Yeah. Uh, and, and not that the staff should be blamed. I mean, people you know have their own minds and can read. And let me set this up with a story because I know when when I talk to city people about ethics and politics, they just freak out. They say like, we can't even accept a pen from you or have lunch yeah. with you, that kind of thing. But we both know, we worked at Queen's Park. We know that lobbyists come, you know, three nights of the week and there's free jumbo shrimp and booze for everybody. And you usually walk out of there with, you know, a bag of something. I mean, it's not major, but like pens and pads and things. And then the, and, and every so often the ethics commission would say, no, no. Cause I was first told when I was elected that the Bax was a hundred dollars that you could accept from anybody. Um, and then the ethics commissioner came on and said, no, you actually can't accept anything. That's a myth. And as her letter came, I remember it's one time her letter came. Uh, the letter also came from a culture minister saying, make sure that you get your two tickets to Stratford <laughs> this year. And I, I remember, you know, so like things are a little loosier, goosier at the, at the provincial and federal level. Got it. Um, but I mean, surely you know, staff at some point in every elected official's office say, uh, I wouldn't do that uh, if I were you, or I wouldn't sign that, or I wouldn't go there, or I wouldn't speak at this. I mean, you did that, right? Absolutely. And I, and I remember my days. Now, I, I've never worked for a federal cabinet minister, so I, I don't know what the process, what the integrity, federal integrity commissioner is, but I know that certainly in the last few years that I was at Queen's Park, the um, the rules tightened significantly. Um uh, and as staffers, we were we were told uh, as soon as we were hired, we had to go to meetings. We had to go to the integrity commissioner's office and sit through um, what felt like a three-hour meeting. It could have been thirty minutes. I don't remember. <laughs> forever. Um, and and even I remember uh, filling. I had an expense uh, claim. We went on a trip up to um, up north. Um, I want to say Sioux Lookout, where we were funding a new um, shelter for. Um, uh, women escaping violence. And uh, my expenses were basically taxi to the airport, my flight. Uh, uh, I had a, a hamburger lunch, uh, which was provided by the, the, the shelter, by the way, and then uh, uh, back to the, the, the airport and home. And it took me two weeks to fill out the expense form and the justifications and the, the this and that. So there's no way staff wouldn't wouldn't be aware of the red flags. It, it's um, it's it's a complete failure of uh, uh, staff advice, and and politicians should know better as well. Like, I'm sorry, but there's no there's no uh, there's no excuse for conflict of interest mistakes these days. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show or podcast here. And uh, it's our left, left, or leftist panel, always popular with Emma Wakelin, liberal strategist, and Alex Grant's Marxist and uh, at Fight Back. So 
Let's move on and let's talk about something that does seem to be working, and that is uh, the Black Lives Movement uprising. I mean, one of the things I was just, I spoke to a classroom this morning. I'm kind of zoomed out, but anyway, I think we all are out there uh, um, about it and said that this uprising in the States and Canada has achieved more in terms of police reform in a few weeks than commissions, investigations, inquiries, everything politicians have come up with and governments have come up with and police forces themselves have come up with and their oversight bodies have come up with. They've achieved, BLM's achieved more in a, in a few weeks in terms of police reform than all of that has in decades. So this pressure from the outside, but here's the thing. I mean, it's achieved a lot south of the border, but not so much north of the border. Alex, what's going on? Why not here? Well, Public opinion has changed here. Let's, it's changed massively in the United States, but it has also changed in Canada. That uh, I see that some very good statistics say uh, 75% of Canadians think the police are systemically racist, and 35% of them think it cannot be reformed, and 51% support abolishing, uh, so uh, defunding the police. Uh, and actually, that, when you get to sort of uh, young people, 77% of young people support defunding the police. So that's Canada. And, and, and in the States, I think it's even more stark. That, but uh, organisationally, that, well, that you've seen all of these barriers. All of the, this, this is, you know, we call it systemic racism. This is the system. It is liberal politicians, conservative politicians, very clearly, and, and, and even um, uh, trade unionists and NDPers putting up a barrier against the call to defund or abolish police. Like, for example, the Ontario NDP, they put out a statement on Black Lives Matter, very, some very good words, but then they said, we cannot dismiss, they said we cannot dis dismiss the call to defund police. But then they proceed to put forward policy that has absolutely nothing about defunding police. And the Clayton Labour Congress is exactly the same. So there hasn't been the, the organisational conduit to actually make this change a reality. And, and, and organisation matters. You can't, it's not just public opinion. You need organisation uh, to push these things forward. Do you think, Alex, that the reason the NDP and the unions have not come out with saying those few little words, defund the police, um, is because the police are a union? Uh, well, I think they're afraid that they're afraid of the system, right? Uh, I, I think the police unions in Canada are very right wing and, and have absolutely zero sway on the, uh, the labor movement. The, uh, uh, but the, the reality is that it's the police are part of the system and a lot of liberal and reformist politicians view themselves as merely the left wing of the system. And unlike politicians like myself, who want to blow up the system and, and you have to blow up the system if you are going to end this racism, end these killings of uh, racialized people by the police. So Emma, um, Black Lives Matter clearly has attained a great deal in a few weeks of the uprising across the world, really, but certainly here in the States. And, and, um, and yet it hasn't, we've talked about this before in the sense that the, the motion that went before Toronto City Council, for example, to defund the police by 10% lost. At that point, I think the polling was 30% of the population was in 
favor of defunding in some level. And, and then this Ipsos poll that uh, Alex mentioned um, that actually other guests on the show have talked about uh, has shown a, a distinct uptick in, in public sensibility around this issue. Um, but I mean, we're, you know, what do you think? Uh, I mean, how, how do we take the activism on the streets, which is substantial in this country and move it towards some something? I mean, out of that city council, the police got more money. They got body cameras. They didn't get less money. They got more money. Emma. So the, the, the answer, I mean, the first answer uh, is we have to put more, the politicians in this country have to take responsibility for our police forces, which they don't. And that's a huge difference between here in Canada and there in the United States. In the United States, a mayor can fire a police chief at will. Um, they, they, can, they can direct a police chief to, to undertake certain uh, police actions. Here, we've insulated the decision makers with our police um, uh, our police bodies uh, with such layers of bureaucracy so that there can be no political interference. Well, that that sounds great in in theory and certain things that, yeah, we don't want the, the prime minister, or the premier being able to tell a police chief to investigate uh, political rivals. But at the same time, now we don't have any way of having any political accountability for uh, police actions. Um, if you look at the police services board in Toronto, and it's the same model for every police service board across the province. Uh, there's, I think, seven members, only three of which are politicians. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of budgeting, um, the, the city council has to, by law, fund whatever budget decision the police services board, the non-elected police services board decides. And then, that, and then the actual enforcement of laws is solely within the police chief, um, and uh, there there's no political um, uh, oversight over police chiefs in, the, in this um, in this country, or at least in this province. Um, we've put together a police oversight body, the SIU, which has a, a like a fifteen percent um, rate of actually convicting officers for wrongdoings, and even those convictions end up being a slap on the wrist. Um, so the, the the, the short answer, I guess, to what you asked me is that if we're going to have fundamental changes to our, our system of policing in, in, in this province, we have to put more accountability uh, on, on politicians. Um, we, we elect uh, figures because we, we, quote unquote, believe in democracy. Why do not we, we take, we give them the, the ability to create war, to, to, fund or defund possible. So why on earth do we not give um, politicians the, the ability to oversee uh, police? It's ridiculous. So I, I thought that, I mean, I, I've, I thank you for that analysis because I'm sure that's news to a lot of people who are listening to this uh, show. Um, but what I heard from city councillors is, you know, even had the motion passed, uh, it's still up at the pr province. Um, the, the province does have some responsibility for police. Is that so that you're saying that's not so? Well, in, in a way, they in that the provinces appoint the police services board. So out of Toronto's seven um, members, three are from the cities, three city councillors, and then four are appointed by the province. But even then, it, it, and a lot of it justifiably came out of the, the um, Dudley George inquest, uh, where uh, Mike Harris directed the OPP to um, 
squash uh, protest in a park and ended up uh, with the death of a, an indigenous person. Um, we have completely removed enforce, um, direction of enforcement uh, from, from, um, from the politicians and shifted to the police boards. So yes, in a way, the province is responsible because they appoint the police service boards and the, the provinces can change the laws um, on, on how uh, police are, are, are governed. But at the end of the day, all of the power as it sits right now are in the police chiefs and in the police service boards. So if the province can change the law, I and mean, I'm just going to you know talk to you a bit on this. So if the province can change the law, um, and uh, clearly we've got a conservative government doesn't want to do that, but but just to imagine for a moment that we had a more you know sympathetic government to the idea of police reform, um, the province could then change the structure of that, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So so Alex, you wanted to get in. Yeah, we think about it. This is disgusting. The fact that the province effect effectively mandates the Toronto police budget, that the largest item on the Toronto budget, oh, well, $1.3 billion or something like that, uh, it's the largest item on the, on the budget, and it's been directed by another level of government. You know, the, the slogan of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation. That if, you know, if, if Toronto, the people of Toronto uh, need to pay, uh, pay for this, then they should control it. And if the province controls it, well, they should uh, pay for it. It's totally sickening. And, and the police cannot be reformed. Uh, this racism is in its DNA. It's in the, the everything it does is instilling uh, the, you know, the oppression of racialized people, also the oppression of working class people. And we need to get rid of the police. We need to get rid of, the, we need to abolish the police and and I think the diff if go to go back to the original question, what's the difference between um, the movement in the USA and the movement in Canada? Is there were more people on the streets for a longer time in the United States? Um, that I, I can't say that the uh, uh, the organisations in the United States are necessarily any better than the organisations in Canada because you've got the Democrats, you've got Biden calling for an increase in police budgets, uh, but the the level of uh, militant struggle on the streets was larger and it was militant struggle on the streets that changed public opinion. Uh, that's uh, the real lesson about this. You've got to get out on the streets to make change. No number of studies and inquiries and stuff like that is really going to change anything. They're just a way of wasting time. I, I just, uh, one, one last go round on this issue. Um, when, uh, so Black Lives Matters asked for uh, a 50% defunding of the police. That's one of their core demands, but, um, but also abolish the police is out there, right? Um, and I, I, I just have to give you some feedback from people who, and again, this is absolutely racially based. I mean, if you ask, you know, black folk or racialized communities about this, um, they're much more amenable to it than, than white middle-class folk. Um, but but it but it scares some people, right? Like abolish the police. So what does that mean if like, you know, I'm being raped, um, I'm being attacked, my home is being invaded. Um, and people go to that fear base and say, who do I call? Like what happens? Like, uh, yes, we get, and many people get um, that, you know, it, it sort of drugs for personal use, that should be legalized and decriminalized and, and police should not go out on mental health calls. And there's already, in fact, some moves in that direction. But, um, 
But what about that core fear, Alex, first, or then I'm going to go to Emma? Well, the current police do absolutely nothing about rape. Uh, systemically, they, they, they ignore it. Uh, the conviction rate and the uh, prosecution rate is uh, in the t- toilet. And genuine uh, saying abolish the police does not mean abolish security. Of course, neighborhoods need security. And you saw this in uh, Minneapolis, that spontaneously out of the mass movement, neighborhoods started organizing their own security. And the police really didn't like that. They really didn't like that. They say that property is nine-tenths of the law. Well, that means that nine-tenths of the law is protecting those who have property from those who have none. And that is the job of the police. They don't stop violence. In fact, actually, in these protests, uh, you saw it especially in Portland, they were instigating violence. So uh, there should be democratically controlled security bodies uh, from working class communities responsible to those communities uh, with the uh, the assistance of trade unions and uh, groups of um, the oppressed, uh, racialized groups, etc., to to organize security and healthcare intervention, mental health crisis intervention, uh, and all of this. Uh, but the police are in- inherently linked to sustaining capitalism. Okay, so just, you know, uh, two points that came out of the Law and Disorder panel that I do on the show. Uh, uh, the two fears were vigilanteism, which, quite frankly, there were some signs of in the states in, in some of the mass movements that wasn't all positive. And number two, what we were talking about with education is rich people will have their own private police forces, their own private security forces. Uh, I'll come back to you on that, but I want to get Emma in on this. What about um, what about that kind of core fear uh, and getting something done up here, Emma? Yeah, I mean, it, listen. In, if we lived in a utopia, that that would be fine. We could implement that, but we don't. People do have fears, and there is human nature. Uh, I think what Alex is saying when he says um, uh, community-based uh, security uh, governed by demo- or uh, democratic or, or a neighborhood control that sounds an awful lot like what police should be um if we we had higher standards for hiring if we did have direct political oversight uh and we had most importantly if we had consequences for bad behavior uh i think um uh, that would be a, a significant strive for social justice rather than than um I, I, you're, I don't think you're ever going to get a, a majority of people to straight up abolish police. Alex, I'm going to go back to you with that, those, the, those possible sidelines of rich people having their own police forces, uh, letting folk in poorer communities fend for themselves. Good luck. I mean, essentially, this has happened already in American cities. You know, I remember back in the days where, you know, there were areas of Chicago, for example, in New York, where I lived for a while, where the police just didn't go in. Um, firefighters wouldn't go in there. Um, and we had a, a local bike gang and, on our street that looked after things in New York. Um, so, so, I mean, is this is this is what people some people have in their heads when they hear these terms which listen I, i'll come out front and say i think absolutely uh the police could easily be defunded 50 percent if they didn't go on mental health calls they didn't go on drug calls um there's lots of ways that uh and and demilitarize the police I mean, it's run like a military force it's ridiculous they're they're trained as military people and then they're sent out to do social work and they're obviously incompetent and they shouldn't have guns that's the other thing but alex what about um 
but about the core concerns of some folk um, that you get you get private uh, little private armies looking after rich people and or vigilanteism on the other side. Yeah, well, I'm not in favor of vigilanteism, and that's why uh, community organized security needs to be democratically linked to working class organizations. And and really, at the end of the day, this uh, this demand to abolish the police is actually linked with the struggle for a socialist society, that a, a society of workers' democracy where working class people control the economy, control the politics, control society, and, or, and self-organize from the bottom up. That at the end of the day, yes, abolish the police is linked to abolishing capitalism. That's, uh, uh, that's why, this is what Trotsky called a transitional demand. And the amazing thing is, it's actually incredibly popular. It's incredibly popular. And people are starting to think about how can working class communities organize their own security and not have a violent outside armed body uh, terrorizing them. Well, we shall move on from this um, and talk about something that's kind of fun, sort of you know, quotes, unquote. Uh, let's talk about what's happening south of the border and the election coming up and the c- huge conspiracies. Uh, so before the show started, I was talking to Alex about just the shows that seem to be um, on the screen and we're all watching too much screen these days. But one of them was an old movie called Seven Days in May, which was about a military coup of the United States taking over the government um, when Joint Chiefs of Staffs organize their own private army and start sort of like the streets of Portland. <laughs> but anyway, start uh, invading their own cities and uh, imposing martial law. And, uh, and this was in response to fairly, you know, this is back in the, you know, in the Soviet Union days, um, you know, red baiting and fear was behind this, of course, but uh, behind a peace treaty and a nuclear arms deal back then. It all works out happily as happens in Hollywood movies. And the other one is the plot to overthrow America, which is what if Lindy and not Roosevelt won, you know, back, uh, back in the war years in the 40s and uh, fascism really, which was pretty rampant back then, the United States really did take over. And so now I'm, we're starting to hear, you know, um, you know, Trump is going to make it impossible to vote. Um, he, he's re- going to refuse to leave office. I mean, any, any good things you've heard, Emma, about what might happen here? Fear factor, conspiracy theories? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's a sign of our times, too, that um, uh, conspiracy theories seem to be more popular now, uh, trying to put some sort of sense into chaos. And there's there's very few things more chaotic right now than the president of the United States. Um, I don't know. It is terrifying to think. uh, And it's, it's not hard to believe that uh, Trump would be petulant enough not to, um, to abide by um, an election where he loses, um, which he looks like he's staring down uh, the face of a massive electoral defeat. Um, And I guess, luckily, uh, the Congress is in the hands of, of um, the Democrats, uh, which is one of the checks. Uh, and um, the Supreme Court still, I, I think, um, uh, is, you know, although Gore, the Gore-Bush um, thing always puts a, 
a fear into that. But I, I think there's enough checks and balances that are still in place to to be able to um, deal with a president who refuses to leave. Um, my fear is that if he does leave, and even if the the legislative bodies push him out, um, at the end of the day, it's going to take either the army or the the secret service to get him physically out of that building, and then that's going to um, fuel a narrative uh, on the the extreme right about uh, coups and deep state and and all the garbage that they throw out there. Um, So uh, yeah, it's terribly unprecedented. Well, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but we are in in dangerous times. Um, And the the good thing that I see is that there is a lot of um, uh, engagement out there and and there seems to be a huge motivation uh, among uh, uh, progressives to get out there and vote. Um, So I think they're, they're going to have a hard time suppressing the vote, but you never know in that country, really, to be honest. Uh, and, you know, these uh, right wing cell groups have guns, you know, it's yeah. kind of scary. Um, Alex, what do you think? What do you think? Conspiracy theories? Have you heard any good ones? And uh, <laughs> what's going to happen? Well, Trump's getting increasingly desperate. He's trying to find a narrative that's going to save him in the election. And, and he's failing. Uh, like he tried to create this big explosion in Portland uh, over so-called violent anarchists, and uh, and it turned out that people preferred violent anarchists to uh, uh, Trump stormtroopers, and they were forced to leave with the tail between their legs, and 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 it got revealed that you know when they say anarchist violence, anarchist violence, it's graffiti. Come on, it's graffiti, and uh, and now he's trying to pick a trade war with Canada. It's like um, uh, Michael Moore's movie, Canadian Bacon. It's Blaine Canada, right? Uh, the sort of evil socialist threat from, uh, from the North. Uh, I don't think that's going to work either with the, uh, the 10% uh, tariffs on aluminum. And uh, I wouldn't put past anything past Trump that he will try, you know, he's also trying to create, uh, yeah, conspiracy over postal voting. When I think in the last 100 years, there's been like 100 instances of fraud. So how many votes versus how many actual instances of fraud? It's a joke. It's a silly joke. It's a classic uh, voter suppression tactic. Uh, But I don't even, I think, uh, there was was an article I read uh, yesterday which said uh, Trump is losing the culture wars. And I think he is. I think, uh, but I wouldn't put it past him to try anything possible but you mentioned the chief of staff. I, the chief of staff, I don't think they support Trump. I think the American ruling class wants some sanity. And so they, pref- they prefer Biden by a long ways. So there's no way that Trump could organize a coup because all of the establishment uh, actually oppose him. Uh, and, uh, and even do you they know, really, armed though? militias. I well, mean, do they really, though? Like you look at, you know, Betsus and... Tesla and these crazy billionaires. I mean, you think they really are going to, you know, want Trump out? I mean, he's been good for them. Well, they're not going to organize a coup for him. That's true. He's just going around (laughs) pouring gasoline on everything. He's making everything worse. Uh, They they want a bit of sanity. That doesn't mean it's going to solve all the problems, but at least, you know, Biden probably won't make them worse than they were going to be anyway. I think Mitch McConnell um, went along with Trump for the first couple of years of his presidency because he was able to put in two, one or 200 judges and try to get Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch on the bench. But 
now that he's staring down the barrel of losing 10 Senate seats, possibly for a generation, uh, I think uh, the, the Mitch McConnells of the world are scared that uh, they're going to lose everything because uh, they've, uh, their, their oxen has gone completely insane. Trump is the best recruiter for socialism uh, in the world uh, by, by a long way. Uh, done more for socialism than I've ever done. So uh, it, uh, people are becoming radicalized because of Trump. But Bernie didn't win the nomination still. Well, <laughs> that's a long story. I, he capitulated to the Democratic establishment, and and I think young people especially. He lost by four, four million votes the first time, and he, he was losing yeah. by four million votes this time. I, I think actually uh, people, people are further to the left and more disengaged. Uh, from the Democratic Party. Well, I I do think there's some truth to that. Uh, And and this goes to, and I'll I'll throw it back to you, to voter turnout. Um, I mean, Biden's not exactly an inspiring candidate. I don't care. I mean, yes, everybody wants to see Trump gone. But I've heard from a number of folk, um, sort of progressive, even some Democrats who basically aren't motivated. You want people motivated um, and, and voting somebody out doesn't necessarily always do the trick. Of course, Trump's helping that. Emma, what do you think? People will be motivated to come out just to get rid of Trump? Let's look at the, the Georgia primaries in 2016. And I might be off by a few thousand, but there was approximately 350,000 voters uh, or 400,000 voters in the, in the Georgia Democratic primaries in 2016. 2018, uh, in a midterm election, it was almost 900,000 uh, voters. In this past one, during a pandemic, it was 1.1 million. So the, the voter turnout uh, in every Democratic primary was way up. Uh, the voter turnouts in the, in the midterms were way up. So there's, um, there's definitely a, uh, a, a push out there to, uh, and, and there's a, I, I think there's still a blue wave and I don't think any uh, politician owns it. Um, and, and I think uh, it's going to smother Trump in November. I, certainly there've been some good signs, you know, uh, more indigenous uh, uh, women, in fact, being elected, more, a black, you know, uh, activist woman being elected. I mean, we're seeing some of these, uh, these seats turning over. So um, here's hoping. Um, and certainly we, you know, we didn't have anybody like, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez before um, uh, in, you know, sort of sitting in a seat and, and having a million followers kind of thing. So there does seem to be that progressive wing. Um, I don't know. I'm just, you know, I don't want to get into conspiracies either, but I'm just scared of those, those guys with guns. Um, yeah, well, listen, 2016, I think, scared the hell out of a lot of us and traumatized us. So we don't know what to believe in. And you're right. I, what terrifies me, too, is that there is a lot of armed, uh, extreme right um, uh, extremists out there. And uh, they're violent and they don't need to be pushed a lot to to exercise violence. Um, and we're seeing it here. Uh, I mean, there was a there's a, a guy with a gun who crashed the prime minister's uh, house a, a few weeks ago. Um, we've seen uh, an incel with a van uh, crash through North York. Uh, we've seen uh, another uh, with, with a gun shoot on Danforth. It, th- there is a rise of uh, right-wing uh, extremism, and we, we need to start facing that as well. We can't ignore that until it's too late. 
last words, uh, we're running out of time here. Before we give those last words, you've been listening to Left, Left, or Left. It's, of course, on the Radical Reverend Show um, with our two panelists who come on month after month and thank them for that. Uh, Emma Wakelin, liberal strategist, uh, Alex Grant, uh, Marxist, uh, fightback editor, a member um, and yours truly, Sherry DeNovo, um, the Radical Reverend. Um, the Christian Left Conference is coming up next weekend. I'm, I'm pushing that because it was partly my idea, but also University of Toronto's idea through Emanuel College and the Mennonites. A number of organizations are getting behind this first of its kind in Canada and it's free. So you can just sign up online here. Lots of interesting things. Bill, Bill Blakey's one of the presenters, but there's lots of others. Um, uh, and yours truly is also presenting. So do join that. We've had uh, the keynote on this show, if you listened into that Christian Left show. Um, so please uh, sign up to Eventbrite. Last words, we just have a minute or two. Alex, uh, what should people be doing in August? <laughs> Uh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, you've you've got this uh, conference coming up uh, uh, this uh, next weekend. Yeah, I had uh, one last weekend. Uh, International Marxist University uh, had six thousand people all over the planet uh, participated, and I actually spoke on Marxism and religion uh, from a, a a atheist perspective, but in solidarity with left wing. Uh, people of uh, belief. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd recommend go to Marxist.com and check out all of the recordings of that because it was a very entertaining uh, uh, few days. And, and, and I think there's going to be the, the black struggle movement's going to continue and there's going to be big explosions around back to school. So get involved in that. Uh, and by the way, I should say uh, Trinity St. Paul's, uh, just Google Trinity St. Paul's and you'll come up with the Christian left Eventbrite uh, sign-up sheet. Emma, what should we people be doing in August? Well, I'll tell you what they should not be doing. I just saw a video on uh, Facebook of a, a bear with nunchucks. And given it's 2020, we can't afford uh, that. So <laughs> I don't want to lose September. Let's stop training uh, bears to use martial arts. Let's stop creating murder hornets. Let's just be cool for the summer. Um, but uh, more importantly, uh, there's a lot of... Um, uh, places like the comedy bar who are opening up in very responsible uh, ways, but um, we're losing a lot of our live theater and our live comedy spaces. Um, and some of that might not ever come back. So if you're in a position to safely uh, see a live show or support a venue like that, uh, please do so because uh, there's a lot of artists in this city and uh, they've lost their livelihoods over the last five months. And we're waiting to see you, Emma, because you do stand-up comedy. So absolutely, we'll be in line to see that. That's it for this uh, show on Radical Reverend Show. Till next time, uh, stay tuned and uh, yeah, get active. Mm -hmm.